All right, come on, good morning, Go Church family. I was reminded this morning that this is the day the Lord has made. The Bible says, let us be glad. Come on, anybody glad and rejoice in it? If anybody loves the Lord, can you just applaud the King today? It's an honor to be together. I look around this room, so glad you're here. Uh, for those of you at this campus, this is our South Metro Atlanta campus, our broadcast campus. From this location, we have the privilege and the honor to live stream our gatherings to everybody watching online, literally thousands of people every week watching online. So we welcome wherever you're watching from and whoever you are. We also live stream to our West Side Atlantic campus. Come on, they're rocking there on the West Side today. And then our campus in Montgomery County, Maryland, 700 miles from here in Germantown. We say good morning to all of you. Whatever campus you're a part of today, can you put your hands together like it's the first time you've ever done it? Welcome one another, greet one another. Come on. It's good. And uh, this weekend at our South Metro Atlanta campus, we hosted the privilege of hosting the National Youth Leader Conference. Almost 400 youth leaders and youth pastors were, were in town this weekend. Some of them and their teams have stayed over today. They're participating in a gathering at Go Church. So if you're from, from out of town, visiting from another church, a, a part of NILA, the National Youth Leader Association, we welcome you. We say good morning to all of you. And then we don't want to miss our weekly tradition. And don't ever let this grow old, all right? where we pause to give honor to the brave men and women that serve in the military, veterans, active duty, and all of those courageous first responders. If that's you at any campus, we want to show you some love. So if you have served, if you are serving, would you put your hand up real quick? Come on. Let's just recognize, applaud, and thank God for all of these men and women. Come on, let's go. Oh, come on. You can do a little better. Come on. Thank you. 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 Come on. Five more seconds. I like it. All right, you ready for the word? If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Week number two of a series that we're doing here at Go Church, and we're calling it Don't Lose Your Faith. Don't Lose Your Faith. Uh, if you missed last Sunday, you can go back online. Those messages are always archived. I want to pray for you as we jump into this word together. If you're at a physical campus, there is a sermon note card in a seat near you. Let me encourage you to take that out to take some notes today. Or if you've got your journal, I want you to take some notes today. If you're using your smartphone, go ahead and turn that on airplane mode or do not disturb so that you can stay focused in on the word. How many of you believe that the Lord has a word for you today? I'm confident of that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you would, just out of reverence and respect to the king, can we bow our heads? Let's close our eyes. I always like to take about 10 seconds of just silence to set our minds in alignment with what the Holy Spirit would speak. Let's take 10 seconds here and then I'll pray for us, okay? Whew, thank you, Jesus. Father, we know that you are here with us through the person of the Holy Spirit because Scripture promises where two or three gather together in your name, you're in the midst. And so we welcome you, Lord, and we thank you for being here. Without you, this is nothing more than a social club or a social gathering. But when you show up, miracles can happen, breakthrough can happen, life transformation can happen. So we recognize you being with us today, Lord, and we're humbled by that. I'm asking that you would anoint me today from the crown of my head to the bottom of my feet. Lord, if you have ever anointed me for a message, would you anoint me for this moment now? And may the cross of Jesus go before me. I don't want to be seen. I just want you to be seen through me. I don't want my words to be spoken. I want your words to be spoken. So I'm laying before you very, very open and very humble, asking you to anoint me. It's not my desire to impress people. It is my desire to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit to impact people. And so, Lord, we invite you into this conversation today. I'm believing that there will be restored hope in you, restored faith, and even some restored love in the local church through this conversation today in this series. So touch us today. Be with us here. We give you all of the honor. We give you all of the glory. And we worship you and you alone. It is not my desire to be a famous pastor or to build my own kingdom. I just want you to be famous, Jesus. You get the glory today. You get the highest praise. 
This is about you and the way that you want to impact lives in this moment. So we thank you, Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and the whole church said amen and amen. We've clapped a whole bunch, but can you take 10 seconds? Applaud King Jesus today. Come on, church. Oh, come on, somebody clap like he's good to you. Come on. Good. So we started this series last Sunday. We'll conclude it next Sunday, three, three weeks on the idea of don't lose your faith. And at the end of the day, we're talking about this phenomenon that is sweeping across American evangelicalism called deconstruction or, or deconstructionism. And truthfully, to define the idea or the process of deconstruction, it's not simple. It's not necessarily black and white or cut and dry, and that's because deconstruction has a different definition depending on the context. So in the academic context, there is various themes to the idea of deconstruction. In faith experience, there's various informal meanings to deconstruction. So last Sunday, I gave you kind of a working definition. I'll, I'll give this to you each week in this conversation. This is, this is how I would define the idea of deconstruction. And as you're writing this down, I'll preface it with this thought Deconstruction really is the process of someone not just rethinking their faith, but sadly rejecting their faith altogether. I'm not going to have you raise your hand to say, hey, I, I know someone, or maybe I'm walking through that deconstruction journey myself, but, but we, we've all got experience, either personally or with somebody, that they have not just rethought about their faith, but they've rejected their faith. So deconstruction, here's the working definition, is the process of questioning, doubting, and ultimately rejecting certain aspects of the Christian faith like, and I gave you one example of, of dozens, but like the purpose of the local church or the unfortunate end result of deconstruction would be rejecting faith entirely or rejecting faith itself. Now, sometimes I can be guilty of, of going backwards more than forwards as we kind of recap conversations. So make sure if you weren't here last Sunday, you, you listened to the message. But I do just want to remind you very, very quickly that when I look at the process of questioning and doubting our faith, that's not deconstruction, that's discipleship. And we talked about that. By a show of hands, and now I will ask you to raise your hand, has anybody ever had a question about their faith or about God or like, what are you doing today, Lord? Okay. Anybody ever doubted? Would you be honest to say that? Anybody ever had a moment of doubt? I shared some like vulnerable seasons of my life with you last Sunday about areas I've questioned my faith or even doubted my faith. But here's, here's what I shared with you. Great questions lead to great faith. So the questions I have or the doubts that I have because we are human, hello, I don't use those questions or doubts to push my faith to the side I use my questions and I use my doubts. I use my very limited knowledge and intellect, right? We have a finite mind. We serve an infinite God. So I use that to lean into more of who the, the person and the power of God is instead of rejecting my faith altogether. Now, this past week, there was some alarming statistics uh, that were released by the Pew Research Group. Now, I don't want to bore you with about 10 minutes of graphs, charts, and statistics. But if you'll give me a couple of minutes, I think that this will really open your eyes to the reality of deconstruction or rejecting faith in itself is not some foreign concept. It's a modern-day reality. All day, every day, people are turning away from God. They're turning away from Christianity. They're turning away from the church they're turning away from this community, this ecclesia, this gathering of people, and they are either becoming atheist, agnostic, or now there's a new group called nothing in particulars, or the nuns. And that's not like the Catholic nuns, by the way. That's like, we're a part, what is your faith? None. I identify as none. So the nuns group. So it's not some foreign concept. We're living in it. And I don't want to get ahead of my, my, my notes here and my thoughts, but the Bible says very, very plainly that the enemy is seeking whom he may devour. And Satan is after your soul. 
And Satan is after your sons and your daughters and your grandsons and your granddaughters. Can I get an amen from somebody? He's seeking whom he may devour. And we must, as the church, not go on the defensive. We must go on the offensive and take back everything and everyone that the enemy has stolen. By faith, how many of you declare, and I speak this prophetically over my house, over your house, and over this house, that the devil can't have our children... The devil can't have our grandchildren. Come on, help me preach for a moment. They are daughters and sons in Christ Jesus. So I plead the blood of Jesus over that generation. And I plead the blood of Jesus over you. We must walk in wisdom and we must be careful not to fall into the traps of the enemy and find ourselves a part of this deconstruction movement. If we've ever needed God, we need God now. If there's ever been a moment that we've needed the church, we've never needed the church more than we need the church right now. And the church is not brick and mortar. Thank God for our beautiful facilities at all of our campuses. But you and I are the church, and we are better together. Come on, can you give God the best praise? Come on. So, so here, here's what the research, what the data says. So again, let me, let me just go here for a moment. And if you're into charts and graphs and statistics, you'll enjoy this. If, if you're not into it, this could be a little bit boring. But hang in there, all right? So Pew Research on Tuesday released a series of modules, four hypothetical modules that looked from 2020 all the way into 2070. I'll show you all four of these hypothetical modules about where they believe religion in America is ultimately headed. Now, if you, if, if you read all of the data and the research, and there, there's hours of it, and I, I tried to read as much as I could this week, I'll summarize it in this one thought uh, released by the Pew Research. There is a surge of people that they are leaving Christianity, and they are becoming atheist, agnostic, or nuns, nothing in particular. Uh, we'll, we'll make this a little larger on the screen so that if you're trying to take a picture of this or at one of our campuses, you can see the four hypothetical modules here. Now, again, Pew Research is modeling the future of religion in America. And here are the four different scenarios. Scenario one talks about steady switching. So movement into and out of Christianity remains stable at current or recently observed rates. That is, and this is alarming, but watch. In each new generation, 31% of Christians become religiously unaffiliated before they turn 30. That's why we need a solid kids ministry and youth ministry and young adult ministry. Because the enemy is after that young generation. And 21% of unaffiliated people become Christians. So leave that just a little bit longer on the string because I'm going to walk through each of these. So currently, 2020, 64% of adults would say that they have some type of Christian uh, moral or ethics. But in module number one, you'll see that by 2070, Christianity to the nuns almost become 50 50, 46% to 41%. Module two talks about rising. A disaffiliation or deconstruction with limits. So in each new generation, a growing share of Christians switch out before they turn 30, while a shrinking share of nuns switch in. But the switching rate is capped to prevent the share of Christians who leave the faith from rising above 50%. So if module two happens, by 2070, there will be 48% of Americans that claim to be nuns, atheist, agnostic, or religiously unaffiliated compared to only 39% of Christians. Do you see the danger in this? And then it goes on, scenario three, over that, this is rising uh, deconstruction without limits all the way down to 35% claiming to be Christian, all the way up upwards to 52% saying they don't believe in God. And then scenario four is no switching at all. So the scenario imagines no person in America has changed or will change their religion since 2020 or after 2020. And you know that we're going to see many people come to faith in Christ. Can I get an amen? And while others, they'll reject faith altogether. Now, I want to tread very, very carefully here because this is important. But I couldn't get away from this thought. And so if, 
you'll have to, we talked about this last Sunday, but don't just take what I say to be absolute truth. You got to read the Bible. You got to study for yourself. Can I get an amen? Come on. But when I read these statistics and I read the research, the one thing that, and this is a question more than it is even a statement, but could it be, could it be that what we are experiencing through deconstructionism is somehow attached to the great falling away that the Bible talks about? Is deconstructionism somehow connected to the great apostasy that we read about in the New Testament. Now, the Greek word here, and again, I'm just, I'm just presenting you with some, some thought, some food for thought. But the Greek word here is apostasia, and it literally means, watch, an abandonment of the truth. Now, your Bible talks about that we know the truth, and the truth does what? Set us free. So what we could be seeing is this great falling away, the great apostasy, uh, and I'll show you a couple places in the Bible where it talks about the falling away or rebellion, where people are going to abandon the truth, okay, and they're going to fill in the blanks of their own morality and ethics and con convic uh, convictions, including a rebellion towards God. Are we seeing that? A rebellion towards the Bible, and then a rebellion towards the Christian faith. All right, let me show you two places in the Bible here. If you look at the Apostle Paul, who was wildly converted from a non-believer, a killer of Christians, uh, to just writing two-thirds of the New Testament, a radical encounter with Christ. You'll see that he wrote to the church of Thessalonica two letters. And the first letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, verses 16 and 17, he talks about the rapture that will take place. This is where, write it down so you can read it later, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. This is where Paul talks about that there is coming a day where the clouds will part, the trumpet of God will sound, come on, and in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, those who are right with the Lord, they will be caught up in the air with them. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that group. Come on, somebody. That's like Holy Spirit Airlines right there, by the way. Come on, it's flying on up. Okay? So he talks about that there will be this great rapture that happens. Now, preachers have been preaching the coming of that day for generations. But if you and I believe that we are living in the last days, and I do, I believe that we are living in the last days, and at any moment, Jesus could come back. I said the other day, Lord, come quickly. Come, anybody with me on that? Like... Is come on back. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks about the rapture that will happen. Well, there began this uh, false teaching that swept across the church of Thessalonica. And so the Thessalonians thought that they had actually missed the rapture altogether. So Paul, in his second letter, he addresses them and corrects their theology and their understanding of the rapture and then the second coming. And I'll show you two, two translations, here, translations here, the King James Version, and then also the New International Version. And watch, watch what he says, and, and I just believe we're living in these days. He says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the rapture, shall not come, except there come a what? A falling away first. So before the rapture happens, there, there's coming this great apostasy, this, this great falling away. People, people will turn their hearts against God. They will reject truth. Do you see that? And that man of sin be revealed, the enemy, the son of perdition, which is, which is, is eternal damnation, hell. Now look at the NIV. So falling away in the King James, in the NIV, he says, don't let anybody deceive you in any way. For that day, the rapture, will not come until the rebellion. And there is this overwhelming spirit of rebellion in our land. Not just in America, but we're seeing it firsthand right here in this country. Come on. The rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So the food for thought here is, is maybe this deconstruction process is somehow attached to the falling away. 
to the great rebellion that, that's to come before the return of Jesus. So you can, you, you can let me be a blinking billboard in your spiritual journey for a moment here. People get ready. Jesus is coming. We better live. That was kind of a weak amen. Some of you are like, really? And when it happens, my father-in-law says it like this. It'll happen so fast that CNN won't be able to pick it up. Fox News won't be able to pick it up. Social media won't be able to pick. People will just be caught up in the air. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be left behind. All right, we'll talk more about the fear of the Lord, a holy fear of the Lord in a moment. Now, I'm going to visit uh, the three external factors of deconstruction and the three internal factors of deconstruction each week in this series because, well, I did too much homework to give it to you once. Come on now, let's just be honest about that. So I showed you this last Sunday. I want to show it to you again. Here are six reasons, three external, three internal, six reasons why people begin to deconstruct in their faith, why they disaffiliate from religion altogether. And while we're seeing these modules, although hypothetical, just the data is, is, is pointing us in a direction that in most of our lifetimes, we will live in a nation that no longer professes one nation under God. Let me tell you, I don't know how long I've got left to live on this earth. I did have a birthday this past week. Come on, somebody, happy birthday to me. So I know some of y'all didn't give me a gift, but I cash out. I don't know how long I got left here on this earth, but as long as I live, as long as God gives me the opportunity to preach, I am going to preach the gospel, which is the good news. And I'm hoping that as many people say yes to Jesus, the greatest decision I ever made was saying yes to Jesus. Can somebody testify to that of your own life? But there are reasons that people are walking away from Christianity. Here's three external deconstruction factors. The first one is low discipleship, or the great theologian Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. So people want community, but they don't want confession. People want heaven, but they don't want holiness. Well, y'all quiet today. People want grace and mercy, but they don't, they don't want repentance. They want Jesus to be Lord, but they want to be their own king or queen. Does that mean? So it's cheap grace. It's I'll do just the bare minimum so that hopefully I can get into heaven. I don't want to do just the bare minimum. I want God to use me in a great way. But a lot of times people uh, deconstruct because they're barely hanging on to begin with. Now, I'm, I'm not your judge, and you ought to say thank God to that. But some, most, most people that deconstruct, they were never really saved to begin with. They were just practicing religion. Then there is another external factor is the secular ideologies. Now, this is not quite as popular of, of a preaching point, but it's still very, very true. And that is secularism... The end goal of secularism is to eradicate religion and faith altogether, to wipe it, to abolish it from the map. And we're seeing secular ideologies in every single thing that you and I do. So there is this overwhelming digital footprint. So all, all around social media, we see secularism pushed into our minds and into our hearts. Come on, say amen to that. That's true. Pop culture from movies to music. It's, it's worldly. Okay, three of you, thank you so much. Right, so, so we see it that way. And then, and if you are a public school teacher, I'm, not, I'm for you, not against you, by the way. But we see secularism in the curriculum of our public school systems now. From, from the littles to the universities, this ideology being pushed and educated into a generation to, again, to remove faith from their heart altogether. Does that make sense? And then, of course, there's broken trust from spiritual leaders. It seems like every other week there's another pastor that has done something, and they have now had to be removed from ministry. I mean, Google pastors that fail, and there's a laundry list that's there. I told you this last Sunday, but I'm shocked that a couple thousand people on a weekend would come to Go Church and trust me enough to lead you on a spiritual journey with all the junk that we see out there from men and women of God. And I'm not, listen, I, I pray that they are restored 
not, not restored into the ministry, but I, I pray that they repent of their sin because that's most important is their soul. I told you Psalm 118, verse number eight, stand on this. It is better to put your confidence in God than to put your trust in man. So while I want you to trust me so that we can iron sharpens iron, if you're putting all of, if you're putting all of your hope in me to never, to never be human, I'm gonna let you down. Now that doesn't give me a, a pass to do dumb stuff. I am, I am held to a high standard of accountability. We all are. But I don't, I, don't want, I don't want the blood of a generation to be on my hands. So I'm going to try to live my life above reproach. But there are people that have deconstructed their faith because a, a pastor or a spiritual leader let them down. I just want to say something. And again, I'm for you. I'm not against you. But, but if you can walk away from God because of the, the sin of man, you were never in a relationship with God to begin with. You cared more about the person than you cared about the person of the Holy Spirit, that intimate friendship. This is flesh and bones up here. Come on. So you don't, and you know people. They're like, well, I, I don't trust leadership. And I, I, okay, I get that. But man, there have been some people that they, they have messed up big time. But God has never failed. God's never let me, let me get 100 people to say amen to that. All right, I'm going to run out of time, and I, I got like two hours of content, so let's move. Then there's the I- internal deconstruction, and it starts with, there, there's just no holy fear of God. If we really had a holy, reverent fear of God, we would never walk away from our faith. And listen, listen to me. One day every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And every single one, every one of us, listen to me, from the youngest to the oldest, we will all be held accountable for every action, word, and deed. And the only way that we get to spend eternity with God is to get our name written in the Lamb's book of life. The only way that we can get our name written in the Lamb's book of life is to stay on the straight and narrow. But people, they don't fear God. It's because a lot of people think that they are God. On the days that I've wanted to walk away from my faith, and there have been those days... There have been those moments. It's been the holy fear of God that has driven me to my knees to realize that one day I will cease to exist on this planet and I will stand before my maker and on that day it is the desire of my heart to hear, well done, thou good and faithful. But those that reject the faith, those that de-affiliate from the faith, you, listen to me. The Bible says that you will hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never even knew you. And people say, well, how could a loving God send someone to hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. God, through his son Jesus, made a way for us to escape the grip of hell. Those that end up eternally separated from God, they get there by their own choice. If God is so loving, which he is, why would he force you to spend eternity with him when you refuse to spend your earthly life with him. Well, say that. I got to move. High digital input, low scripture input. Lord willing, we'll talk about this one next Sunday in detail. But here's the fact. Too many people are on Facebook and not enough people got their faith in God, facing God's book. Strolling, strolling, strolling. And all of the digital media that's out there is getting into garbage in, garbage you are what you eat, you become what you consume. And people are spending hours online and, and minutes on their knees in prayer and in the spiritual disciplines. And then the third one, and I want to spend the next 20 minutes, maybe, right here on the wounded heart. On the wounded heart. I have never met one person that has deconstructed from their faith that didn't have a wounded heart. Somewhere, somehow, by someone, and they would include God into that someone, they got hurt. They experienced pain, grief, sorrow, loss, and all of the other synonyms that I can think of right there. Now, I'm not minimizing what anybody has walked through. And I'm not trying to minimize what some of you are walking through right now with the sorrow that you carry. 
but we've all been hurt. We've all experienced pain and loss. And so here's what I'm learning is that most people aren't really deconstructing. They're just highly discouraged. They're confused. Like I, I went all in with God. I gave him my whole life, my whole heart, and then the bottom fell out. I put my hope and my confidence in this Jesus, and then a storm showed up. Am I talking to anybody yet? Come on. And so we have this traumatic life experience where something or someone has hurt us or been hurt, and it shakes us to our core, shakes our faith. So in all of the years that I've been doing ministry, which is north of 20 years now, I was three years old when I started preaching. Come on. Here's what what I hear. I hear this all the time. You ready? Hang in there with me. Nobody leave. Watch this. Here's what I hear often. I don't believe in God because if God is real and if God is good, then why did that bad thing happen to me? Almost every person that has de-affiliated, deconstructed, it goes back to this thought. I thought God was good. I thought God was real. But he can't be good and he can't be real because if he were, why is all the bad stuff happening? I don't, I don't have enough uh, television streams to show you all the, the stuff that people walk through. If God is real, if God is good, why is there cancer? Why did a moment ago at this campus during our ministry moment and prayer moment, I pray with a lady who's walking through a diagnosis of breast cancer? God, you're real, you're good, then why is there can't, why, why is some of your stories involve a miscarriage? You were, you were promised a child. You became pregnant, and then in that pregnancy, there were complications, and that child didn't survive. How is God good? How is God real? Why is there death? Why did my parents divorce? Why did my spouse cheat on me? Some of you, and I'll be very, very careful here, but there are stories of people that attend our church that they've been raped, trafficked. I'm not making this up. How is God good and real if rape exists or if war exists or, or murder or the, the sin of racism or genocide? So, so watch. Does this make sense, right? Yeah. So if, if you're good and you're real, then why are all these bad things happening around us and to us? So people say this. They say, well, I've decided that I can't be a Christian because if God is loving, he wouldn't let all these bad things happen. Uh, Can we jump into the deep end for a second? Okay. This is a, a tricky part of our conversation today, but one that must be had. So it starts with, and there's like three different factors that really create some tension to unpacking this thought, and many of us have had this thought. I I went all in, and I got wounded. I got hurt. Bad things happened. So now I'm just, in my mind, I'm saying, okay, if God's loving, then all those things wouldn't have happened. So I'm not going to be a Christian. So let me start with this. One of the, the trickiest parts of that thought is, who are we to be the final authority on defining what is good, loving, Bad or evil? Let me explain it like this, and I'll, I'll try to, I'll, I, I read better when there's pictures. Can I get an amen from somebody? And I think I teach better when there's pictures too, but there are no pictures here, but I'm going to try to paint an image in your mind. Who says that war is bad? Why do we, why do we say war is bad? It's rhetorical, by the way. Why do we think that when a a tornado comes and it it kills people, that that's bad? Why why is an affair, why is that a bad thing? Are you with me yet? why, Why are those things bad? By a show of hands, every campus, how many of you would say that it is not right to mistreat somebody? 
And, and anyway, keep, keep your hands up for a moment. And if your hand is down, you get to mistreat them. I'm just kidding. That's, that's a joke. Okay, hands down. To, to abuse them verbally, physically. Did you read the, the article the other day? As if Chick-fil-A needed to be more heroic. They've already invented God's chicken that will be served at the marriage supper of the lamb. They've already figured out, you know, the NASCAR of drive throughs so you can get your fast food even faster and feel good about how much they make you pay for it. They're so nice to you, you don't even know you paid $22 for a piece of processed chicken. That's how good they are. My pleasure to take your money. But now they're tackling people in the driveway. So let me just give you, to all you carjackers out there, let me give you a word of advice. Go to McDonald's to hijack a car. Don't go to the Chick-fil-A because you're going to get tackled. That's what's going to happen. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've seen that story. Why is carjacking bad? Well, why, why is it that you and I, now again, this is, we're a part of the Western culture here at Go Church, so a lot of this is Americanized, but why, why do we feel bad? Why do we define good, loving, just, unjust, evil? Where does that come from? At some point, you have to ask this, why do I believe that something is evil or bad? We're almost there. Hang in there with me. I figure if I just keep talking, at some point it'll land. So watch. Why do I believe that something is bad? Why did you raise your hand and say that mistreating people is bad? Watch. Everybody lean in for a second. If you, if you don't believe in God, if you don't have faith in God, if you and I are nothing more than flesh and bones, and one day... We'll stop breathing and this body will turn to ash and be put in the ground. Then why does evil, bad, good, and loving, why does that even matter? What does it matter? If we just evolved out of nothing and we will return to nothingness, then why do we even care if bad things happen or good things happen? I'll tell, I'll tell you why. It's because you, you actually believe that there is an absolute truth. The tension that you feel. So being an atheist is actually too simple. Because when you say there is no God, then you can't justify your morals or your ethics. But the reason you feel the way that you feel, the reason that black lives really do matter and blue lives really do matter, and the unborn really does matter, is because God values people. Hey, if we're going to clap, let's do it well. If people don't matter, if people don't matter, then have at it. So the tension that you feel is this wrestling of, man, wait a minute. I feel a certain way because I see that people actually matter. And watch this. People matter because God created people. Timothy Keller, who is a brilliant mind, people often get me confused with him. Um, it's, it's, I mean, I can't even, it's just, it's exhausting. But anyway, watch what he says. The fact that you admit that there is terrible wickedness in the world actually provides a better argument for God's existence than one against it. The fact that someone would argue that there is evil in the world, there is hatred in the world, there is evil in the world, that's an argument that there has to be a God versus there isn't a God. Because if there is no God, then how do we know what good and just and right and wrong is? Before Christianity, this world was barbaric. Women had zero value. Women were valued at about as much of a cow. I'm not making that up. We live in a culture now that when there's a disaster, it's women and children first. Back then, it was the only, the only first for women and children was murder. But then Christianity shows up. And what happened? We started taking care of orphans. And we built orphanages. And we started taking care of the widows. 
which is still the heart of the church and the heart of Go Church, by the way. We started building universities and, and morality and ethics were established in the land. So the fact that you admit that there's terrible wickedness in the world just proves there is a God. Let me give you two more quotes. These are longer, so they'll make them large on the screen. One by the great C.S. Lewis. Watch this. My argument against God, now he was initially an atheist. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I arrived at this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. And I said this a moment ago, consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Alvin Plantinga, watch. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to, to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus, no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. In short, the problem of tragedy, suffering, and injustice is a problem for everyone. It is at least as big a problem for non-belief in God as for belief. It is therefore a mistake, though an understandable one, to think that if you abandon your belief in God, if you deconstruct, then somehow makes the problem of evil easier to handle. Does that make sense? So let me try to turn this into some encouragement. And here's the encouragement. Here's the good news. We all go through seasons of sorrow. We all go through hard times. We all go through deep pain. You have no idea the story of the person that's sitting on your same road today. The stuff they've walked through, the hell they've been through, the difficulty the trial, the struggle. So watch this. Instead of deconstructing in your faith when sorrow comes, let me give you two truths about a season of sorrow. Can you write these down and then I'll pray for you. Here's the first truth about a season of sorrow. In our sorrow, God is still sovereign. Oh, come on and say amen to that. Come on, somebody testify to that. That in our sorrow, God is still sovereign. Now, I don't want to assume that we know what sovereignty means. So a simple definition is that he is all-powerful and he is completely in control. That nothing is out of the control of God. Now there's a tension in that theology because that means that sometimes the sorrow that happens, God didn't cause, but he also allowed. So in my life, and I've been through some stuff, you see the glory, but you don't know the story. I've learned now, in hindsight, that the sorrow that I went through, God actually used to draw me closer to Him. That even in my lowest moments, that I can look back over my life and see that even in my deepest, darkest pain, God works, Romans eight twenty eight. He works all things together for my good. Now in the moment, I felt like all hope was lost. But now I see that God brought me from glory to glory to glory. I feel like testifying right now. Come on. And now I can look back and see, okay, God, you drew me in through the pain and the hurt. And I found a part of you that I never knew existed. Because the only way out of rock bottom is up. Come on, church. I look up. To the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. Listen to me. God doesn't care about your happiness. God cares about your holiness. And sometimes it is the suffering that drops us to our knees 
and we cry out to God, God, I can't take another step without you. Listen, that's the kind of dependence he wants. Even in our sorrow, God is still sovereign. By a show of hands, has something ever happened in your life that in the moment it felt hopeless, but now you look back and you see God turned that thing for good? That that, I wish you'd help me preach. That that tragedy now is God's triumph. That that test is now your testimony. That that mess is now your message. Come on. God, God, watch this. God is in the business of getting beauty from ashes. That's what he does. He turns beauty from the ashes. I think I got to move, but watch. I think about Joseph. Joseph had 10 brothers older than him and one brother younger. God had given Joseph a dream. And Joseph shared that dream with his siblings, his brothers. One day all of you will bow at my feet and worship me when I'm promoted to a high place. Let me tell you this, not my sermon, but you need to hear it. Be careful who you tell your dreams to. His brothers dug a pit and buried him in a hole. One of them felt guilty. Literally, read it in Genesis. They felt guilty, so they trafficked their brother. They sold their brother to a group of gypsies that were driving by. But your Bible says that even in that moment, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph ends up landing a job for the Pharaoh as a servant. Well, there were accusations, false accusations that came against Joseph, and they threw him in prison. But your Bible says that even in the pit and even in the prison, I feel the Holy Ghost, that the Lord was with Joseph. While in prison, two of the prisoners had dreams, and God gave Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams. One of the prisoners got released from prison. A couple years later, the Pharaoh had a dream, and this guy that was in prison with Joseph remembered his friend. And he said, I know no one can interpret your dreams, but there is a guy in prison who's got the gift of dream interpretation. Now Joseph has been promoted from the pit to the prison, and now he's in the palace. And the Lord was with Joseph. And here's what Joseph said about the Pharaoh's dream. There will be seven years of abundance and seven years of famine, seven years of lack. And the only way that we'll survive the seven years of famine is if we store up food in the seven years of abundance. And so the Pharaoh said, I'm appointing you as my chief you know, uh, assistant here to run point on the logistics of the storing and keeping of the food and then the process of distribution during the famine. And what happened? Some years into the famine, guess who comes and bows at the feet of Joseph? His brothers. And Joseph, because the Lord was with Joseph. And God's promises are yes and amen. Even if the devil tries to, there ain't no power in hell that can stop the sovereignty of God that is on your life. Some storms are self-inflicted. That's the stupid storms. Come on, look at somebody and say, that's you. And then there are spiritual storms. But no matter the sorrow, God is still sovereign. Now those brothers bowing at the feet of Joseph. He invites them to dinner and he reveals his identity. And this word spoken in Genesis 50, 20 is a word for your story as well. Here's what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for my good. Let me say it to you like this. What the devil meant for evil... God will make good because even in our sorrow, God is still sovereign. Come on and give the Lord the best praise you've got. Woo. All right, I'm over time. Way over time. Watch this. Here's the second one, and I'll pray for you real quick. <laughs> even in our sorrow, watch this. Here's another absolute truth. God sent his son Jesus. And he bore our sorrow on the weight of his shoulders and on the weight of that cross so you don't have to carry it alone. Now, what I wanted to tell you is, is that you don't have to carry your sorrow at all, which is true, but we do that. We carry it, we feel it, we experience because we know the pain. 
But I do want to encourage you at the very least is that when you're walking through some hard times, don't, don't let the pain turn you away from God. Let the pain draw you to God. Watch Isaiah 53, 4. I'm going to give you about five verses here. He took up our pain, bore our what? Suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Psalm 34, 18. Read this with me. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Matthew 5, 4. Let's read it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Matthew 11, 29 and 30. Come on and read. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light do you know that God has a great exchange program that you can take your sorrow and give it to him and he'll give you rest and joy John 16 33 come on and read I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble but take heart for I have for I have And this is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Cast all of your anxiety, cast all of your depression, cast all of your fear, cast all of your doubt, cast all of your sorrow, cast it on God because he cares for you. Watch this. Never one time in the Bible will you ever read that God promised this life will be easy. Bad grammar, good preaching, but it ain't in there. But over and over and over again, you'll read promise after promise where he said you'll never be alone. When I look at the sorrow that I've gone through and the difficulty of what lies ahead, because how many of you know life is life and none of us are exempt? I can't imagine going through that sorrow without a Savior named Jesus. I need you, Jesus. Here's the closing questions. Let me pray. What the Holy Spirit speak to your heart today? And what's your next step? Every campus, heads bowed, eye closed. Campus pastors are moving now. They're going to take the stage and close out their locations. Come on, in this room and at all of our campuses, let's begin to pray. Campus pastors are coming. Come on.